Our reading this afternoon comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, the verses 12 through 20. First Corinthians 6, the verses 12 through 20. This is the word of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We also turn to Lord's Day 1. Going to start the catechism again from the beginning as we do every year. And so we. We'll read Lord's Day 1. Page 517. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sin and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance.
beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're back at the beginning of the Catechism, Lord's Day 1. Perhaps some of you are wondering why we do this every year. Why don't we just preach from the Bible in the second service? Of course, a good catechism sermon should draw on Scripture for its content. But the catechism helps to give shape to that content and to formulate it in a particular way. You could say that the catechism is like a roadmap to the gospel. Now, these days, very few people use a a roadmap anymore because everybody has a GPS on their phone. It's much easier to use. But the problem with using the GPS is that you never really know where you are. All you do is follow instructions, right? And 300 meters, turn left at the next intersection. And to some people, that's what faith is. You don't ask questions. You just follow instructions. But the catechism wants us to to do more than that. The catechism wants us to have a clear idea of where we are and a clear idea of where we're going. And driving, the only way to get that level of clarity is by using an actual map. And in the same way, the catechism is a roadmap to the gospel. Once you get that roadmap clearly in your head, you get a clear sense of direction in life. You start to see everything that you encounter in terms of where it fits on the map. And that map is huge. It helps us to get an overview of the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. It helps us to understand the conflict between the gospel and the world. And once you, start, once you become sensitive to that conflict, you start to see it everywhere, even on cereal boxes. Boys and girls, do, you, do any of you eat Nutri-Grain cereal? If you do, you've seen that for a while now they've been featuring stories of athletes who overcame adversity. They, they have a picture of the athlete on the box and a little blurb with a story or her story beside, beside that. And one of those on the box that we have at home is called, the athlete's name is, is Ali Day. The blurb on the box reads as follows, quote, In 2019, Ali Day had reached the pinnacle of his sport, taking out his second Nutrigrain Ironman title. Tragedy struck a few months later when he shattered both wrists in a freak accident, end quote. The blurb goes on to describe how he recovered and made a big comeback, and it ends by saying, quote, Ali is unstoppable on his path to achieving his dreams and being the best that he can be. Now, we hold no ill will towards Mr. Day. We wish him the very best in his sporting career. But is it really correct to say that tragedy struck when he injured himself? In what universe is this a tragedy? How can you call it a tragedy when an athlete shatters his wrists, has to take it easy for a while, and eventually works his way back to a big comeback? How is that a tragedy? This would only be a tragedy if this life is all 
that you have. And that's the problem, isn't it? That's the thinking behind that blurb. That's the big unwritten assumption behind the cereal box and the story of Ali Day's recovery. It is that this life is all that you have. And if that is so, then breaking your wrists is a tragedy. Because for him it meant missing out on a year and a half of the life that he loved. And you'll never get that back again if, if they're right. Against that, the catechism puts everything in a totally different context. It says, I am not my own, but I belong both in body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that puts everything on a totally different playing field. That's all-encompassing. I mean, what could be bigger than body and soul, life and death? And it says, I'm not my own. There's no statement more radical than that. It is challenging, comforting, and consequential. So that's also how how we're going to approach Lord's Day 1 this afternoon. We're going to look at that statement, I confess that I'm not my own, and we'll see the challenge of this confession, the comfort of this confession, and the consequence of this confession. So the Catechism opens with the word comfort. It's a word that's frequently misunderstood we, we often think of comfort in very physical terms. We talk about comfort food, creature comforts. There's even a liqueur that you can buy called Southern Comfort. So that word comfort is, um, we usually think, think about it in different terms than what the catechism means. The way that Lord's Day 1 uses the word, it's more, it's more like an opening salvo in a massive gunfight. Lord's Day 1 makes some drastic assumptions about the world. It carries those assumptions into this word comfort. It implies that the world is a place that is under the power of Satan, that it needs to be redeemed, that redemption is possible only through Jesus Christ, that he is the undisputed Lord and King over this world, and therefore the only person who has the undisputed right to tell you how to live your life. Surely you have not forgotten that today is Christmas Day. We celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. He was born as a true human being. And the incarnation proves that he is not just laying claim to the spiritual part of the world. If that was all it was, then there would be, we would have no problem with faith in the public square. Right? The world has never been opposed to a small amount of religion. That that has never been the problem. People in general are are quite respectful of of religion as long as it's contained. But when you take it seriously, that's when it becomes a real challenge to the world. And Lord's Day 1 is an epic challenge. It's a challenge to power, to authority, to the very essence of how we regard the world. So Lord's Day 1 is a challenge to the world. And it's, it's not just a challenge to the world. It is a challenge to us as well. Is Jesus our comfort only at sad times or at all times? Is he the Lord of your soul or also your body? We live in a world where, where many people claim to be spiritual. Everybody is spiritual. Nobody wants to define what that actually means. 
Many people are happy to have a religion of the mind and the emotions as long as it has no consequences to the body. We read this afternoon from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Paul was writing to people that, that were freshly converted from heathendom. They, they were still wet from the waters of baptism, so to speak. And he taught them that they were set free from the power of the devil. Lord's Day 12 appears to be a quotation of something that they, that they used to say and that he refutes. All things are lawful for me, he quotes him as saying. It's hard to tell where this came from. Maybe he, he'd been teaching them about the um, Jewish ceremonial regulations like he did to the Galatians, with the Galatians, and, and then they took that, all things are lawful for me, and they took that and they applied it to everything. That's possible. In any case, we can deduce they, these people were, were engaged in some form of, of sexual immorality, and it was shaped by this very question that is also raised in Lord's Day 1. How far does the lordship of Christ extend? And you have to understand that this immorality was, was normal in Greco-Roman society. People complain sometimes that, that we live in an immoral time, and we do. But, but this is certainly not the most immoral society that has ever, ever lived. Greco-Roman society was profoundly immoral, sexually immoral. And, and that's reflected here, and also in verse, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. It's possible, by the way, that the quotation included, it didn't stop maybe at food, it might have included also that phrase, and God will destroy both one and the other. The Greek language doesn't include quotation marks. There are no quotation marks in Greek, and so, so where you put these marks is an interpretive decision. It has to be implied from the context. But it's quite possible that they thought that since the Old Testament dietary laws had been abolished, therefore they could ignore God's law altogether. There's different theories as to what was meant here, but one thing is clear. They did not understand what it meant that God, that Christ had redeemed them, body and soul. So Paul's response is built on this principle that we, we find back in Lord's Day 1, and, and, and he says to them, Christ did redeem us body and soul, and if he's only the Lord of the soul, you're functionally denying that there is a resurrection. That's why he brings a resurrection into this. He says, you're for, for us, we're ignoring the very reason why today is Christmas Day. That he was born with a human body to redeem the human body as well as a human soul. So the point is, the bottom line is, if you are joined to Christ in faith, then you are joined to him completely. You belong to him body and soul. You cannot be half joined to Christ. And Paul applies this specifically to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality of any kind means you become one flesh with another person. It refers in verse 16 to, to prostitution even. A very specific, very extreme form of sexual immorality. Remember the people he's writing to, this was a common thing. And um, it has a high shock value to us, but, but the principle that he, he's using here applies to, to all forms of sexual immorality. The prostitute is somebody who is opposed to God and body and soul. 
And Paul is saying if you, if you are joined to someone who is opposed to, to God and body and soul in this way, then, then you become one flesh with her. He's taking this, this imagery from Genesis, Genesis 2 verse 24, of course, where it's applied to, to marriage. And he says this, is, this actually brings about a, a union between two people. And you, you cannot be joined to Christ in body and soul which is what it means to be Christian, and then also be joined to a prostitute. It's like an arm or a leg, right? If you, if you, if you have an organ transplant from one person to another, they cannot, you cannot have both people using that at the same time. You cannot expect to be able to use it yourself if it belongs to someone else. Your body, says Paul in verse 19, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He uses the word body here. He doesn't use the word flesh Flesh often focuses on, on the sinful part of, of human existence, the weak part. But the body is often used as a word to describe the space in which we live out our relationship with God. It's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 19, it is a, a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. All sin defiles God's temple but sexual sin does so in a particular way. That's not worse than other sins in, in its essence, because all sin is, a, is rebellion against God, but it is worse in its consequences because you are physically united to another person because of this one flesh principle. A, a thief does not become one flesh with what he steals, but somebody who engages in illegitimate sexual activity um, does become one flesh with that person. Now, there's nothing more countercultural than that in this age of my body, my choice. But it is the consequence of confessing that I am not my own. If you confess that you are not your own, then one of the first and most, most obvious places where that's going to apply is, is here. In this one area where you would normally give yourself to someone else, there's consequences to what you believe. This is challenging. It's very challenging to the world, and it is challenging to us. It's also comforting. None of what, what Paul is saying here, none of what the Catechism says, none of, of what we've heard so far today makes any sense to unbelievers. This idea of, of not being your own is the very thing that makes Christianity so offensive to other people. It runs exactly opposite to what the world cherishes. The world sees this as a choice between being independent or being religious. But actually, what the catechism is presenting is a choice between belonging to Jesus or belonging to Satan. By nature, we're not wired to understand these things. It's one of the symptoms of, of being blinded by Satan that you're not able to see this and not willing to understand. Think, for example, of the Jewish people that, that Jesus wrote about, or he spoke to them in, uh, in John 10. They said to him, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus says to them, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. So those are the two options. If you don't belong to Jesus, he says, you belong to the devil. 
So it's not, you should not think that this is a choice between, being, between Lord's Day 1 or being independent. Instead, it's a choice between the Lord or Satan. Either you belong, it's not even a choice, it's a, it's a fact. Either you belong to the Lord or you belong to Satan. What does it look like to belong to Satan? This is what it looks like. That I think I am my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my fierce opponent, Satan. The full reckoning for all my sins will be payable on death, and I will be fully committed to the power of the devil forever. Already now I am under the wrath of God, and anything can happen to me at any moment. Indeed, all things will work together for my eventual destruction. Therefore, I am also assured of eternal death and must live for myself as long as I can, and it will be a lot shorter than I think. See, that's the option. And that's why Lord's Day 1 preaches such a powerful gospel. That's what makes it so powerful because it says, He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. There's this, this imagery of having been bought that comes back in verse 20 of our reading as well. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought. That means I have a different owner. Now, something that um, you should know is that in our reading, the word translated as bought um, is actually borrowed from the slave market. It depicts a slave being sold to another owner. And Paul is using this slave imagery to talk about how radical our redemption is. Now, some of you might say, what about Galatians 4 verse 7? He says we're no longer slaves, but but sons. Sure, he's making a different theological point there, though. The point here is that as the point there in Galatians is that as believers, we are part of God's family. But the point here is is he's using an, an image from the first century slave trade to highlight God's absolute authority over us. The devil has nothing left to say to us, but that does not mean that we get to go off and do our own thing. Now, now maybe this imagery of buying and selling slaves leaves us feeling uncomfortable. But we should not read our own cultural assumptions into the text. See, when we think about slavery, our our thought processes are shaped by the horrendous practices of the 16th or 17th century slave trade in the Americas. And maybe also some of the very sad history of... um, the first fleet and what happened afterwards here in Australia. But slavery in Greco-Roman times was quite different. A slave who was sold to a good master could have a good life. In fact, some of these people owned slaves themselves. It was part of this chain of patronage that we've looked at before that went all the way to the top, and at the top you had the emperor. So a slave who was sold to a highly ranked master actually derived honor from belonging or being associated with that master. Now, over time, the gospel did play a role in dismantling the institution of slavery from the inside out. But Paul here is is writing in a context where slavery is still normal, it's still accepted. And so he uses this vocabulary of slavery from his culture to make a theological point. He's saying, look, we have a much higher owner now. We belong to him completely, body and soul. He's fully paid for all of our sins. Payment was made to God, by the way, not to Satan, because ultimately God is the judge. 
The point is that through his blood, Christ has obtained complete and total remission of sins, including sexual sins, including sins of the body, including sins committed to the body or with the body. He has settled every account. We belong to him completely. We're under his protection. We will never be separated from him again. Faith means that you confess this unconditionally. You might not always feel it. Sometimes we're theologically ignorant. We don't fully understand the consequences of what we profess. Sometimes we struggle with depression or anxiety. We don't, we don't, we're not able to hold on to these things. We don't fully feel the consequences of what we profess. But none of that is the point. The point is, in this confession, God is utterly reliable. The focal point is Christ, not our feelings, not what we think, not what we think about ourselves, not what other people think about ourselves, but simply on what Christ has done and on what Christ says. The Dutch theologian Klaas Schilder had a a wonderful um, way of putting this. He put it really well. He said, you don't just confess Lord's Day 1 to be comforted. You confess it because you are comforted. It's not about your feelings. It's about the facts. You are comforted. It's, it's about proclaiming the works of God. It's a very factual confession. Christ is our faithful Savior. This is a factual statement. It's not an emotive one. It encourages us to, to look at history. Look at his track record. Look at your life. Where has Christ shown his faithfulness in history? Where has Christ shown his faithfulness to you in your life? Think back, have there not been many times in your life when Christ showed his faithfulness to you? Has he not forgiven you over and over? Has he not kept you from grievous sin? Has he not delivered you from bondage to darkness? Is he not a great and faithful God? The focal point of Lord's Day 1 is to proclaim that, to glorify him. That's what this confession is about. So we've paid attention to the challenge of this confession, to the comfort of this confession. Now let's pay attention to the consequence of this confession. In Lord's Day 1, we confess that he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. What this is saying is that the reality of what we confess is much greater than our circumstances, no matter what they are. Circumstances can be very difficult. Disasters, mistakes, life-altering sins, diseases, cancer, pain, death. Circumstances change all the time, but God doesn't. And, And so what the catechism is doing here is reflecting something from From Romans 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called called according to his purpose, Catechism says, see, all things work together for my salvation. Now, how, how does that make sense? How can all things work together for my salvation? What does it mean? Well, salvation does not just mean that you are saved from judgment. Instead, salvation is the full range of God's gracious work in your life. That includes conforming you to the image of His Son, 
enabling you to bear fruit in your life and ultimately to glorify God through your life. And often you can only encounter these things in difficulty. Often that can only happen in difficulties. You might not see that right away, but that is what happens in the long run. And that's what happened to Job. What, was, what happened to Job? Well, he lost everything. What was his comfort? Not that he got it all back again. His comfort was realized on a much deeper level when he encountered God. And when he realized what it means to belong to God, the physical restoration was an afterthought in a sense. Think of the words of James 5 verse 11 here. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. And then look at this, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Well, the compassion and mercy, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful makes no sense if you look only at what happened to Job. The fact that he lost his entire family other than his wife, that his business was destroyed, that his health was ruined. In and of themselves, those bare facts do not adequately reflect God's compassion. It's only when you see it in this bigger context of all things um, working towards salvation. Then it starts to make sense. That's what it means. The compassion and mercy doesn't refer to the terrible things that Job underwent. It refers to the grace of God who held on to him through all these things and the comfort that Job received after. So think about this. All things work together for my salvation. Christ is fiercely protective of his people. So that means he will not let us dabble in sin. He doesn't make all things work together for our salvation. He doesn't redeem us and then leave us to our own devices to to dabble with sin, to play a little bit with sin along the edges. He refuses to be second best in our life. He will not be one priority among many. He will not let his redemption be cheapened into a life of self-serving behavior. This is why Christianity alone can bring out the true value of a human being. Each person who has been redeemed has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ has infinite value. Therefore, each redeemed person has infinite value. Only Christianity can teach you that. There's no secular worldview that will acknowledge that people are precious. Well, it will acknowledge that people are precious, but not all people. Our culture, for example, attaches very little value to the life of the unborn. It attaches very little value to the lives of those who are old or unproductive. Oh, it says that it does, sure. It says all sorts of stuff. Who listens to what people say? You've got to look at what they celebrate. And what does society celebrate? It celebrates people that are rich, young, beautiful, productive. Those are the people that are honored. Those are the people that have the most value in our society. That is a simple fact. Against that, Christ has redeemed us, body, and soul. By his Holy Spirit, he also assures us of eternal life. There are no ordinary people. There are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who will inherit eternal life and those who will inherit eternal death. 
There's no third kind of people. Look around you carefully. Look at these people in the pews beside you. Everyone you see will live eternally. There are no ordinary church members in this building. Our redemption is all of us, forever. Now, there's a consequence to confessing that you are not your own. If you are God's slave, you are not to do what you want, but instead bring glory to Him. The focus is on Him. We are to draw attention to Him. Our whole life is to point to Him. And precisely because that involves our entire life and our entire body, it is not separate from mundane questions like what you wear to the beach, for example. You weren't expecting that, were you? You came here expecting to hear about theology, and instead you're going to hear about beachwear. If you confess Lord's Day 1, if you believe Lord's Day 1, surely it would apply to the most basic question of what you put on in the morning. And it would apply to questions like, should a Christian woman wear a bikini to the beach? It's an interesting question. One writer said, It is hardly necessary to waste words over the so-called bikini, since it is inconceivable that any girl with tact and decency would ever wear such a thing. That didn't come from your mom, by the way. It didn't come from a Christian writer. That came from Modern Girl Magazine, 1957. Modern Girl Magazine. It's funny how attitudes shift over time, isn't it? These days, people wouldn't even understand what the question is. But does that mean that therefore we go along with the flow without ever questioning the culture that we're in? Do we just take a diluted form of of what our culture practices, take a diluted form into the church and then say that this is what Christianity is, is is that what this is? Do you really think that wearing a bikini will lead people to praise and glorify God? And if the answer is no, isn't the ultimate purpose of our life to praise and glorify God? There are numerous passages in the Bible that indicate this is our ultimate purpose in life. This is, this is to glorify God is the ultimate purpose of all people, whether they're believers or not. Some people will glorify him by showcasing his redemption for other people. God will be glorified in their destruction. But everybody ultimately is going to glorify God with their life, whether they believe it or not, whether they agree with it or not, whether they want it or not. This is a single Faith that every single human being has to glorify God. The scriptures are very clear that believers were meant to glorify God in their redemption, to draw attention to Him. Romans 3.23, Romans 15.7, 2 Corinthians 1.20, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 15, Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, Philippians 1 verse 11, Philippians 2 verse 11, dozens and dozens and dozens of other pa- passages, the whole Bible itself ultimately points to this one great reality, to glorify God in your redemption. So yes, it does apply to what you wear, to the beach, or to church. You can find ways to argue against it, but that's not the point. People will always find ways to argue against everything. The basic question is, who who are you loyal to? 
And that principle applies to wearing clothing that is overly revealing in general, whether you go to church or to the beach. What you believe has consequences. If you're going to confess what Lord's Day 1 says, and if you're going to mean it, you need to be consistent. And it doesn't apply just to the ladies. It applies to the men just as much. Imagine a man who confesses that he belongs with body and soul, both in life and in death, to his faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, that's why I would never commit adultery. But I do like making jokes with innuendo sometimes. Sometimes I like being entertained by shows where this behavior is depicted or referenced or assumed to be normal. Well, that doesn't make any sense either, does it? Paul says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. That, that, that means that you don't try to justify things that you know are wrong. At the beginning of the sermon, we saw how faith transforms everything, even how you read a sports blurb on a cereal box. It puts all of that in different perspective. If you don't have that perspective, then anything that holds you back from your dreams is a tragedy. But you know what the real tragedy is? You want to know what the real tragedy is in life? To go through life thinking that this life is about achieving your dreams and being the best that you can be. To go through life with no greater goal than being the best version of yourself. That is tragedy. Because if that's all you have, you will eventually lose that as well. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So put your faith and trust in him. Confess that you are not your own. There's nothing you can say that is more challenging than that. There's nothing you can say that is more comforting than that. There's nothing you can say that is more consequential than that. May we all learn to say it. May we all learn to mean it with our whole heart. I am not my own. Amen.